everybody. How are we all doing? I'm Mike, joined by Alex as always. How's it going? And this is Falling Through Plot Holes, a podcast about video game plot lines and how they have a tendency to go off the rails. Alex, how are you doing today? I'm doing well. Doing good. At the end of the weekend, been a good mm-hmm. weekend. Very good, very good. This has been a very good weekend as well. Uh, very, very tiring, mm. uh, which, to be fair, has been the story of my life for about the past two weeks since I've gotten back from mm. Games Done Quick. Mm-hmm. Uh, but yes, also very, very good. And we have a we have a pretty good episode today. I I had to say it's a it's a bit of a backup episode. Mm. Uh, and the reason being is because well, I, I should probably start out with a bit of a programming note. So. I've already told you about this, Alex, but right. for the viewers at home, I'm in the process of moving. Mm. Now, if there's anybody who's no, who knows moving, uh, who's done that recently, it's kind of a pain in the ass. It is, yeah. Yeah, and this has been something I've known about for a while, and actually have been trying my best to prepare for it, but uh, <laughs> circumstances have changed things that make it a little bit more urgent. And mm. I did not actually tell you about this, Alex. I alluded mm. to it. Um, my place kind of almost burned down while I was gone. Ah. Yeah. Um, this is not because of the, uh, random arsonist that's setting small things on fire, by the okay. way, uh, which is something that's happening in my neighborhood for the right. people at home. Right. Uh, it's more that something that was attached to a set of lights basically fell while I was gone. It fell mm. off, um, the, uh, mantelpiece above my fireplace. Uh-huh. Yeah, because it was a heavy metal object that was affixed via super glue and foam tape. Uh, I did not do that, I should point out. Okay, this, yeah, this I, I kind of assumed, yeah, that's uh, that's not really the right way to affix heavy objects to a wall. It's not, and it was attached to some electrical wiring that right. basically got pulled out from a socket inside of the wall, which is a bit of a problem Though mm-hmm. thankfully not a problem that got me killed because it pulled out the neutral wire and not the hot wire. So when I turned on the lights, it didn't spark everywhere, catch insulation on fire and kill me. Great. So. <laughs> Great. Okay. Well, good. Dodged a bullet there. Um, Do- dodged a bullet. But what that means is that I am in the process of uh, trying to move basically as soon as possible. Yeah. Yeah. That makes sense. So what this means for the podcast is that we're still going to try to basically cr- try to get an episode out a week uh, you know, every week and whatnot. But if I, for one reason or another, there's just a week where there's no episode, you probably know why. Either one, I'm moving, or two, house burned down. Mm. One or the other. Mm-hmm. Okay. <laughs> Perhaps assume both. Maybe both. Entirely possible both. <laughs> Entirely possible. So, yeah, life's been interesting. Yeah. Much like this episode's going to be interesting, Alex, because, uh, once again, uh, it's kind of as part of like getting things together and you know moving it whatnot. I decided to do an episode that's a little bit more off the beaten path. We mm. are still going to be talking about a video game, one that you may have heard of, you may not have heard of. Uh, one that's I'm going to just be upfront is not really that important in the grand scheme of things, mm. but I think its development history and kind of like the team behind it is is interesting in their own rights and it might be kind of a fun episode to talk about yeah i like talking about that stuff yeah so let's go ahead and jump right into this so let's go ahead and set the stage by 1994 the video game company square had quickly ballooned from a company that 
literally seven years ago was on the verge of bankruptcy. Now, this is Square, the famous RPG company, now known as Square Enix. Uh, they were nearly on, nearly bankrupt uh, seven years ago, but now by 1994, they were one of the premier Japanese video game developers. Mm-hmm. With such games such as the Final Fantasy series, Secret of Mana, and in Japan, the Saga series, uh, they quickly established themselves as the RPG company, with only their rivals Enix being anywhere close to them. Mm -hmm. This made them a very big deal in Japanese gaming circles. But outside of this market, they were still a relatively niche company. And this is particularly true in the United States. Now, this is not to say that their games didn't, like, sell well. Final Fantasy II was a success for them. Mm -hmm. But it wasn't on the level of, say, like, Super Mario World. They were right. selling, like, 200,000 copies, 300,000 copies for their biggest games, not millions. Mm -hmm. Now, this isn't for want of trying. Uh, given their explosive growth uh, uh, in Japan and their mild success in the United States, uh, they decided, hey, let's try to expand our reach worldwide. And they started by establishing a North American subsidiary in Redmond, Washington, uh, called Squaresoft. Which is very, very confusing because a lot of their Japanese games are going to displace the Squaresoft logo. <laughs> right. Like on the boxes and everything, but mm -hmm. it's very, very strange. But with this company, they began to localize more of their niche titles, right? Because they're like, okay, Final Fantasy has been a success. What if we start bringing over other stuff and see what happens? So games in the Saga and, and Mana series uh, would come over to the United States, although they would be localized and rebranded as Final Fantasy games, right? Right. Uh, with the Final Fantasy Legend and Final Fantasy Adventure making their way to the United States in 1990 and 1991, respectively. Uh, these were like mild successes. And with that, they went even like went out of their way to publish and localize RPGs made by their rivals. Uh, games such as Capcom's Breath of Fire, for instance, mm -hmm. and How Laboratory's Alkahest were localized and published in North America and in Europe as well. Now, Breath of Fire actually was a shockingly successful game, the mm -hmm. first one. Uh, like, it was actually uh, one, of, like, one of the NES's best sellers. Mm. Uh, but it, it still wasn't like one of their own bespoke games that was like really hugely successful. Right. And it's, now, they're still playing in a genre that at this time in the West is very niche and very nebulous. Like, it's hard to explain to people what a JRPG even is. Exactly, exactly, yeah. For the most part, these things are like just, you know, still you're like a very standard like turn-based games, mm -hmm. right? Uh, Alka has been like the weird, like the weird uh, difference in, in this one, but it's how laboratory they, they tend to do weird things at times. Right, yeah. And like some of the games they did, well, I guess Final Fantasy Adventure as well, but that was on the Game Boy and it was kind of very early on in the Game Boy's life, so it was mm -hmm. kind of shuttled off in its own way. Right. But yeah, they, they basically dabbled in things that they were very familiar with. Now, this is going to change very quickly, Alex, because they are going to finally put out a game in North America that is actually going to have a pretty big, for them anyways, level of success. Mm -hmm. uh, it's going to be a game that's going to have maybe one of the dumbest developments I've ever heard of. <laughs> Saiken Desetsu 2, or Secret of Mana. Mm. Now, Alex, Secret of Mana is not today's topic. Okay. It is very relevant to today's topic, but it is mm -hmm. not today's topic. Okay. And so we need to talk about it at least a little bit. Now, Secret of Mana is going to be a huge success for Square, and it's going to be a success sort of in spite of itself, right? Right. 
Uh, for those of you who have who've listened to our Chrono Trigger episode, might remember some of these details. Uh, but this is a game that at first was going to be Final Fantasy IV, and then later they went, ah, this is kind of too different. It's like this uh-huh. like real like real time game, uh, more action oriented. So how about we shift this off to the Chrono Trigger project, and maybe this will be Chrono Trigger. And then everyone went, actually, how about we don't do that either? <laughs> and how about we, you know, we spin like the Chrono Trigger parts off and actually just make Chrono Trigger. Right. And we developed this game in mind for the upcoming Super Nintendo CD add-on. <laughs> <laughs> game is cursed in many ways. <laughs> oh, how many times did Square get screwed by, we're going to build this for Nintendo's upcoming CD add-on. So many times, actually. It's, like, it's l- probably less than four or five, but it's still weird that it happened multiple times. It, it keeps coming up, particularly in this podcast series of like, and then Square tried to do something for the Super Nintendo CD, and then they went, <laughs> oh shit, this is not actually a real thing, is it? <laughs> yep, pretty much. Pretty much. So yeah. This add-on never happened, so they had to quickly repurpose the development back to the Super Nintendo, which was um, a real problem because they basically budgeted a lot of their, like, okay, like, the objects they were going to create in this game, Mm -hmm. the music they were going to produce. Right. Like, oh, we're going to have all this space to work with, and then all of a sudden they're like, well, we're back on cartridges. Right. (laughs) Oops. Mm -hmm. Unfortunate. guess we're going to have to cut a lot of things. (laughs) And then the... it gets even like crazier because when the game was localized for the English-speaking markets and done in a mere 30 days because Square had no idea that people might need time to do things with translating Japanese to English. Mm-hmm. Yeah, um, that's going to be a running theme for them, too. It is. Um, at least it's not as bad as Final Fantasy VIII where they forced the where the, the American um, translating team had to, like, use a game shark to actually insert code. <laughs> uh but th- this is still pretty pretty bad anyways, because they didn't give them mm-hmm. any, like, resources, so, like, they couldn't compress the font correctly. Ah. Uh. <laughs> so, like, Ted Woolsley, who's the main translator on this, was like, we had to cut, like, most of the story. <laughs> <laughs> and just put whatever we could on there, because we had to meet a 16 megabyte cartridge. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and, yeah, so, like, they did all that. They basically... St- Strip down the game as much as possible. It's an incredibly buggy mess. Anybody mm-hmm. who's ever played Secret of Mana knows that. And it's it was a complete nightmare of development uh, that one day we will probably dive more into because mm-hmm. it is absolutely wild. But my point is, is that this game was cursed from the get-go and should not have been a success when it was released in 1993. Which is, of course, why it was an incredible success. Right. Yeah. Yes. Melee sold out in Japan within days of release, and by the end of the year, it sold a little over a million copies. In the United States, however, it seemed like at first it was going to be like every other Square title released in the country. A modest success, but nothing to build off of. Mm-hmm. However, Alex, this is going to pull a My Big Fat Greek Wedding of mm. video games. Mm. Uh, maybe not to quite to that level of success, but point is it's going to stick around. Right. Uh, the gaming retail store Babbage's, uh, which maintained a chart of like top-selling games back in the day, I would note that the game would remain in the top 10 best-selling games for an entire year. Uh, I believe a couple months after its release, it was the second best-selling game on the Super Nintendo behind Mortal Kombat. Wow. Yeah, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, magazine Next Generation would note the game was surprisingly popular and would estimate the game had sold 500,000 copies in the United States alone. 
Now, it turns out that this was a little bit more than expected, mm -hmm. but Square themselves would later confirm the game would sell 1.83 million copies worldwide, with 330,000 copies um, of attributed to other markets, and that primary market was the United States. So, it was maybe not as big, big of a success as it was almost being made out to be, but mm -hmm. it was bigger than more or less anything they had done that wasn't just strictly Final Fantasy. Right. And this was backed up by the glowing reviews it had upon release. Like, it was not only a commercial success for them, but a critical one as well. It's large, colorful graphics, it's real-time RPG gameplay, uh, and its music were all met with an extreme level of praise. Now, for Square, the most important thing about this, though, was that success overseas. And it's because of that they struck on an idea. What if we made a development team at our North American offices and made an RPG with American audiences in mind? And it's with that idea that the game Secret of Evermore was born. Oh, and that's boy. our topic. Oh, it sounds like you're familiar with Secret of Evermore. Not very much. I have heard, I've definitely heard the name before, but I don't know that I've ever actually seen the game. Mm -hmm. um, my reaction is more just to the idea, th this idea of, wow, we found some success in Western markets. Let's make a game for Western audiences. Mm -hmm. No. No, that's not, but that's not why people bought your games to begin with. No, it wasn't. Like, yeah, it's... people were interested in what you made for Japanese audiences. Right? And it's, it's such a common mistake that Japanese companies make, and something that Square themselves are going to make multiple times mm -hmm. over literally to the present day, actually. <laughs> Yeah, like, um, yeah, boy, they will, huh? They will. Like, wow, our games are doing really well. Why don't we buy, like, an American company or form an American development team and just make a game for them? Let's make games about, I don't know, uh, American malls or something. I, <laughs> we'll figure it out. And it's like, no, we just, we want the weird stuff. It's cool. Yeah. We, we like the weird stuff. You might think it's too weird for us, but it's not. That's it's, the reason why we bought it in the first yeah, place. Yeah, it's why we're here. Yeah, you, you you had us at the word go. What is this? <laughs> oh, yeah, exactly, exactly. And yeah, Secret of Evermore is a game that I had as a child. Mm -hmm. My parents decided to buy it for me for reasons that I cannot understand. I was probably asking for like Secret of Mana or something like that. And they were right. like, I don't know. Here you go, kid. <laughs> it's, it's newer and better. Yeah. And it is... It's a fascinating game to me because of that. Um, mm. Because it is literally Secret of Mana. If basically it's like a company went, what man, that Secret of Mana game is cool. What if we just made like a copy of that? Mm -hmm. Except the company that made it and published it right. is the same company that made Secret of Mana and published it. <laughs> <laughs> they ripped off their own game. Right. <laughs> and it's 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 crazy to me that they did that. And it's crazy with, to me, like, the direction they went with it, and also, like, how they, like, will dumb down some of the systems and whatnot. Uh, and, like, everything from, like, the graphical presentation to how the game even sounds was also just incredibly different with how games, well, looked and sounded at the time. Mm -hmm. uh, in fact, I think a lot of the sound design is really ahead of its time for video games. Hmm. Focusing a lot on, like, more, like, ambient sounds. Right. Like, 
listening to like the the ocean or like birds in the background or whatnot with like mm-hmm. no backing track to it. Hmm. Interesting. Uh, yeah, which I have some examples queued up. We're gonna listen to a few of those a little bit later when we talk okay. about the composer of this game. Uh, but yeah, like it's like stuff like that. Um that really stuck with me for a very, very long time in a way that, um, you know, I occasionally revisit the game. In fact, I revisited the game on stream a couple, uh, couple months ago hmm. and, you know, found it a game that was definitely less than the sum of its parts in many right. ways, mm-hmm. but still something that when you realize that the development team was brand new and I, boy, do I really do mean brand <laughs> new, uh, first job out of college, brand new, mm. It's actually very, very impressive, and I'm kind of sad they never got another shot at it. Right. So yeah, uh, one of those games like, you know, if you're on a real binge of playing Super Nintendo games, I'd say check it out, but like, I would not like direct somebody to like, go and seek it out, just, you know, apropos of nothing. Right. It, it is not a hidden classic. It is a curiosity. It is 100% a curiosity. A very, once again... And a real labor of love, too, in many ways. There's a lot mm-hmm. of, like, really silly Easter eggs in there. Mm. Including an after credit scene that doesn't show up unless you, like, wait on the, the end screen for five minutes. <laughs> and then another one 30 minutes after that. Like, weird Why? stuff like that. The 30 minutes one is just a, is a joke. Okay. It was one of the, the developers. But the five-minute yeah, five one is actually a little... <laughs> it's a little much, but... But, yeah, so... Secret of Evermore, as you, as you can probably tell, is not a game that exactly set the world on fire when it came out of October of 1995. Right. By that point, the PlayStation had already come out. And Nintendo's successor system, the Nintendo 64, was well into development. And games on the Super Nintendo were considered to be a bit quaint, right? Mm-hmm. But it's still a pretty interesting game to me because it's one of Square's first attempts at developing a game with a Western team. And while Square will make a few other attempts later on in their history... This is something that certainly wasn't going to be a regular thing until they acquired Eidos in 2009. Mm -hmm. Uh, It's also going to be the start of the careers of some developers who are still in the business to this day. And so I think with that, let's talk a little bit about the development of Secret of Evermore. So Evermore is going to get its start in early 1994 with a staff that's going to be relatively new to gaming. And as I just said, these people are going to be literally like first, like first job out of college, like level of uh, Mm -hmm. first day on the job. Right. And this is going to include, like, principal people, like the lead programmer, Brian uh, Fadral, and technical producer Rick Ryan. Like, this is their first job Hmm. in the gaming industry, which is kind of crazy to, like, you know, give them, like, these these high-level positions and be like, just kind of go. It's like something you would expect out of, like, the 80s Mm -hmm. in gaming. Yeah. Not like the 90s when things are a little more buttoned up. It's also kind of a weird move that, like, if their intent is to develop a game for Western audiences by Western designers, mm-hmm. to sort of then hire on a bunch of people who haven't worked in video games before? Yeah. Yeah, it would make you think that they would try to, like, maybe poach another studio or maybe right. buy another studio. Yeah. Square definitely had the money at this point to potentially explore those options. But no, they just went, what if we just hire a bunch of people at our North American offices? Right. Yeah, it's a very it's a very interesting decision. And granted, Western video game development around this time wasn't exactly well looked upon, I would say. Mm. Like outside of like maybe like like the early days of Blizzard or whatnot. Uh-huh. But, but at the same time, yeah, it's a very interesting choice that they went with basically the newest possible people they could find. 
Right. And then especially because, like, in general, video game development for the Super Nintendo was uh, sort of ad hoc, we might say. Yes. Uh, A little... A lot of elbow grease went into making those games work. And, uh, yeah, a lot of those Square Enix games, particularly things like the Mana series, were very, uh, just, I would say, held together by duct tape and prayer. Oh my god, yes, they were. They're, every one of those games has something fundamental about them that just doesn't work. (laughs) That should, but doesn't, like Mm -hmm. Final Fantasy VI, like... The blind status effect, which most enemies can like put on your party members, doesn't right. work. Oh, uh, yeah, just doesn't doesn't do anything. <laughs> the block stat doesn't work. So. <laughs> <laughs> so like you can actually break the game because like magic block just does everything in that. Or like yeah, like um Secret of Mana's, yeah, like Secret of Mana, like your party members get stuck on geometry all the time. Uh-huh. You accidentally put yourself into a wall if you look <laughs> at the game wrong. Yeah, there's a very funny um um, Brian Fadrow does a really good interview that I sourced a lot of this from mm-hmm. where he talks about like, oh man, we were kind of worried about like going over scope of this game because, you know, Nintendo had a really robust certification process and if there were big bugs in your game, they wouldn't uh, they wouldn't certify your game. Mm-hmm. And it's like, that seems like bullshit. I'm sorry. <laughs> For two reasons. One, squ- all of Square's other games and two, Secret of Evermore has a game-breaking bug in it that I found when I was 10. <laughs> <laughs> you could literally softlock your game three-fourths of the way through, as I have done. <laughs> yeah, so the the fabled Nintendo certification process wasn't airtight. And I, no. I especially imagine for Square Enix games, which are like some of the most complex on mm-hmm. the system. Like, there's a lot of places for bugs to hide that I imagine testers at a certain point just sort of threw up their hands and were like, I don't know, man. Yeah. I don't know what it's supposed to look like when this game works properly. So I, that's, that's honestly true. I mean, back in the day, a lot of times um, American testers would get Japanese copies of games, for instance. <laughs> right. <laughs> and I'm like, just, I don't know, figure it out. It's like, we can't actually. <laughs> Yeah, it seems like it works. Yeah, so yeah, no, it um it it is no surprise that these games were a mess. And yeah. Evermore is gonna have its fair share, certainly. Well yeah, especially like throwing new graduate programmers at the Square Enix method of I don't know, code it and hope. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Basically. <laughs> Basically, it should be noted that Square actually did develop some really good middleware tools, but mm-hmm. um, mm-hmm. it uh, yeah, it definitely didn't stop things. Let me tell yeah. you, yeah, no, like I'm I'm not trying to accuse anyone there of like incompetence, yeah, but purely out of again the amount of complexity that they were trying to work into the relatively limited power of the Super Nintendo and very small flash memory cartridges, mm-hmm. like yeah, man, I. Probably most things will work. Mm-hmm. Yeah, most likely, but eh, you never know. <laughs> yeah, exactly, exactly. So, yeah, like, a bunch of new people on here, and, like, even the people who weren't new on here, by the way, this was, mm-hmm. like, usually, like, a year or two out from, like, their first ever jobs anyways. Right. Like, concept, a uh, writer and concept designer, uh, George Sinfield, like, 
this wasn't his like first game for instance but like his previous games he worked on were the wayne's world games uh uh which uh as a person who just watched the speed run of wayne's world at summer games done quick it, it don't seem like a very good game but <laughs> so yeah like it's not really a whole lot of credentials that are going into this right uh and this is going to be something that's going to be reflected in the type of game they're going to make. A game that's essentially going to be, if not a copy of, then a very similar game to Secret of Mana. Down to the combat system, and even a lot of the sound effects are going to be very similar to the game. Though not, not one-to-one, oddly enough. Hmm. The, the, like, the sound effects are like, yeah, that's a sound effect from Secret of Mana, but the pitch is wrong. Uh-huh. <laughs> Which we'll get into why in a second. Uh... Now... There's going to be a clear reason for why they're going to go in this direction in the first place. Square saw that Secret of Mana had actual, tangible success in the United States, and they wanted to replicate that. Mm -hmm. So they put together a team to make another one of those. Right. As lead programmer Brian Fadral put it, quote, That was practically our prime directive, so to speak, coming straight down from Starfleet Command over at Square Japan, our mother company. We were, simply put, to make an American-flavored Secret of Mana-like game. The exact details of how we did it were up to us, but what we did had to be infused with that essence. End quote. Now, I always find this especially funny that Square did this, because while this is going on, they are actually making another Secret of Mana. Right, and that that's what's interesting to me, is that like this is very clearly meant to be a successor to Secret of Mana. Mm-hmm. But also Trials of Mana is going to happen. Mm-hmm. So, like, is there plan to branch Secret of Mana off into continuing the Mana series and then also now the Secret series? Yeah, it's it's kind of odd. It <laughs> it seems like the answer was more like the PlayStation is out. The Super Nintendo is going to soon be sunset, right? Mm-hmm. And by the time that... Psycho Desetsu 3 or Trials of Man, as is known over here, was going to come out. It would have been like 1996 at the absolute earliest. Right. So I bet you Square went, well, that's just not going to happen in time. That's this game's not going to sell as well, no matter how pretty it looks. And Trials of Man is a very pretty game. Mm-hmm. So what if instead we just give an American team a year and a half to be like, make the thing. Right. Just capitalize on the current success. Yeah, I, I think that's what the direction they went with. Um, right. It's, it's kind of an unfortunate direction they're going to take because for years, fans of Secret of Mana are going to basically accuse of Secret of Evermore of essentially preventing Psycho Decessu 3 Trials of Mana from coming out over here, mm. which is completely not true. Right, yeah. It, it's just more that Capcom just kind of, uh, Capcom, uh, Square just kind of had their hands full. Development was going log on mm. Psycho Decessu 3, so they went... I don't know. Let's just make another game. Like this team was not was this team was going to exist whether uh, Trials of Mana was going to come over or not. Right. Um, but at the same time, it also reminds me of Dark Souls Two. Yeah. Which is Dark Souls suddenly became an unexpected hit, uh, but Miyazaki's core team was going to be over there making Bloodborne for a while, and Dark Souls is hot now. So mm-hmm. I don't know. Just get some people to make another one. Yeah. Yeah. Just. Push it out the door. It'll be fine. It, we just, it, we need to make this happen. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Big success. I, Get the money. I always love it when companies do that because it, it's almost always a compromised product, but mm-hmm. usually compromised in some of the most interesting ways imaginable. Yep. Yeah, that's true. Yeah. 
Uh, it's lovely. Yeah. So, it's because of all this that Evermore very clearly is going to use a lot of systems that were in place in Secret of Mana. The Ring Menu System, a system where the game freezes and you can select actions from a ring of options that surrounds the player, makes its return here. Uh, weapons power up every time you kill an enemy, which is just like what happens in Secret of Mana. Uh, multiple player characters are present on the field, and you can switch between them. And they all perform ind actions independently of each other. Uh, however, it's at this point that we start to see the problems with having it completely due to the industry team take point in development. Because here's the thing, Alex. Mm. Everything about this game is very simplified. Mm. For instance, those weapons I talked about, uh -huh. uh, they can only be powered up to like a power level of four. Oh, so that doesn't seem like a very high amount. Is not because in, in Secret of Mana, it's you can power up to nine. Mm. And every time you power a weapon up, you can like hold A to charge it and get a more powerful attack from it. So this basically you max out like your weapon's power relatively quickly. Mm -hmm. Now they solve this by being like, okay, well, each world you go to, you'll get like a new sword and whatnot, and you have to power that up again. But oddly enough, that ends up being broken because your dog's attacks, uh, uh -huh. you can power them up to level four, and that just stays throughout the different worlds. Oh. And so it's basically like, well, my dog does so much more damage to me, so like, why doesn't he just do all the attacking? <laughs> hmm. Yeah, fundamentally kind of breaks the combat after the first world, in a way. Yeah, that's, yeah. Yeah, and speaking of those weapons, there's only five distinct weapons in the game. Like, there's a sword, mm. there's an axe, there is a staff, and then later you get a bazooka. Oh. But like each world, you end up replacing those weapons with kind of better variants that you have to power up again, which very quickly you realize this is actually not worth it. So you just right. once again rely on the dog. Right. Now, uh, the world, it's also the the uh, party is just a two member party. It's you and your dog. In mm. Secret of Mana, you had three characters and it was also a multiplayer game as well. Right. Like, it's one of its main solid points was that it was a three-player game on the Super Nintendo. Mm -hmm. Secret of Mana is only a one-player game, and that is a choice that the developers made to reduce complexity. Mm -hmm. One that the lead developer uh, actually mentions later is like, this was kind of a mistake. We should have messed around with it. We were worried about glitching the game out too much, but we should have just kind of figured it out because that would have been made a much better game. Right. Uh, even the game world itself feels smaller than Mana. There's really only like four distinct areas in Secret of Mana, uh, Secret of Evermore, compared to like Mana's like 20 or so. Uh, yeah. Yeah. And this, in spite of working with close to the same memory restrictions that Secret of Mana had to deal with. Mm -hmm. uh, Secret of Evermore is going to initially be slated for a 12 megabyte cartridge, which is small, but it's not as small as it could possibly be. Four megabytes is the smallest possible cartridge on the Super Nintendo. Mm. Uh, Secret of Mana had a 16 megabyte cartridge. So okay. it was, they had a little less to work with, but still, right. it, it's still quite a bit of a cutback. Yeah. And so it's, it's kind of interesting to me that like, yeah, especially with the multiplayer thing, you know, mm -hmm. they, they're taking all these steps to reduce complexity, reduce size, and they're going to what seems like pretty incredible links to do so. Mm -hmm. But a lot of what they're reducing is problems that Secret of Mana solved. Mm-hmm. And I, I, I don't know if there were issues with, like, getting proprietary code from that game or getting communication with more senior <laughs> developers, but it, it just seems like, for one reason or another, they can't even look to Secret of Mana as a guide 
for how to do this stuff. I'm really glad you brought that up because, no, they couldn't. Square, for one reason or another, did not allow them to use that code. Of course not. Right? It's insane. Once again, real some legacy. some Naka shit. It is, isn't it? <laughs> <laughs> no, you can't use my 3D engine. How dare you? Uh, I wonder how he's enjoying jail right now. I, you know. Got sentenced recently. Yeah, I saw that. I'm sure we'll be playing a game about it in like six or seven years. Oh, I can't wait. Uh, yeah, it's... But yeah, yeah, no, it's, um, uh, Brian uh, Fadral, the uh, mm. lead developer, notes that he doesn't remember the exact reason why, whether it's like a proprietary code reason or something else. But one reason or another, they were like, hey, you can't use this code. And he went, right. well, shit, okay, we'll just build it from the ground up. And he knows that there were some good and bad things from this. Like, obviously, mm. he would love to have had that code, but they did implement a lot of, like, different things into this game that weren't present in Mana. Mm. Uh, for instance, this game used an alchemy system where you collect ingredients and you mix okay. them together to make uh, make spells and whatnot. That's fun. It is. It It's, it's mostly fun. Um, <laughs> it's a fun idea. It's a fun idea that they just do, do not follow through to its logical endpoint. It's really right. sad. Mm. Um. I, but yeah, like they, um, the, he said he talked about how like it would have been more difficult to implement that if they actually had the code. Whereas they built it from the ground up and they could, you know, do what they needed to do with that. Mm -hmm. So there was some good and some bad from it. But given that this game is going to have roughly about a year and a half development cycle, right. potentially less, n not exactly great to start from square zero. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Now, and it also sounds like that development cycle was absolute hell. Once again, according to Phaedral, they had basically a six-month death march to finish it. And that's his words. Yep. Uh, he talks about how, like, one of the, the, the interviewer asked him is he, like, he, like, played the Secret of Evermore since this came out. And he's like, I did not touch that game for months mm. because I could not even look at it. it the right. development was kind of so bad near the end of it. Mm -hmm. Yeah, uh, I can see that. Yeah, it, it sounds rough overall. And, like, these are stories that you hear at video game development all the time, even to the present day. But Right, yeah. Still, and still rough. Yeah, and certainly for, like, the 90s, and certainly for a a branch of a Japanese video game company, where it's like, yeah, yeah, of course you're going to death march. That's just what work is. Mm-hmm. Exactly, exactly. It's like, that's just, that's just the nature of the game. So, and I can totally see, like, these bunch of, like, incredibly new developers being told mm. that, and they're like, well, shit, this is our first job. I guess this is what we do. Yep. So, yeah. Yeah, it's it's not good. Not good. So, on the writing side and the concept at large, it was decided early on that the game would be about a boy traveling with his dog through a world based on cheesy B-movies. Uh, not huh? the world's worst idea. Okay. It's not a bad idea, but it's not what I would expect from a spiritual successor to Secret of Mana. Absolutely not, right? Yeah, it is. It is a very, it's a very out there idea for the '90s. I would say. Yeah, yeah. And I guess I'll spoil this. They're not going to stick with that for long. Okay. Now, in the meantime, though, producer Alan Weiss is going to come up with the first draft concept of the story, mm -hmm. where, according to him, a group of magic users with the ability to tell dream stories. Okay. Uh, they basically would use their skills to transport listeners into the experience. And basically, the main character would be transported into these different situations. So that's how they get to different B-movies. Mm. 
Uh, he is apparently trying to stop a main villain who is trapped in one of these dreams, but his evil power was basically corrupting the entire experience, and you were there to try to stop him. Hmm. Now, this game ended up being known as Vex and the Mesmers, with Vex being the name of the villain. Okay. Now, I personally like the name Vex and the Mesmers. That's not it, bad. Yeah, that's, that's got something. It, it sounds like a fake band in a Scooby-Doo movie. <laughs> and I love that. Now, writer and design uh, producer George Sinfield apparently wasn't a fan of this, and he requested a name to be changed. And after a company-wide poll, it was decided a new name would be Secret of Evermore. And so let's... With that, let's talk about the main writer of this game, George Sinfield, a man whose name is absolutely ungoogleable. <laughs> you Google his name and you get a lot of George Constanza because they go, oh, you mean Seinfeld, right? And it's like, right. no, right. not. not mm. Mm. So this game is going to be his second writing credit. It's also going to be his last. Uh. Uh, I don't think the game story is bad, by the way, but mm-hmm. it is going to he's. Basically going to be like, ah, I'm just going to just more work on the design part after this. Okay. Now, he previously is credited with writing the story and dialogue for the Nintendo published Zoda's Revenge Star Tropics 2. I, that doesn't I, sound like a real video game. It doesn't, does it? That sounds like a fake parody video game that someone would just say the name of mm-hmm. as a line of dialogue when talking about video games secondhand. This is a... Disney Channel ass video game name, yes. Uh, it's going to get even more unbelievable when I tell you that this is a Nintendo published NES game mm. that came out in 1994. Huh. Right? Uh, why? G- g- great question. <laughs> because I know nobody who bought the original Star Tropics, and I definitely know nobody who bought Star Tropics 2. Um. <laughs> For 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 reference, by the way, the last Nintendo published game for the Super Nintendo is going to come out in three years with Kirby's Dream Land three. Mm. So it's really weird that like they're still like eh, let's put out games for the NES. Like a year before that, I think it was Kirby's Adventure too. Like they were huh. they were really supporting that system for a long time. Yeah, I mean, I guess people still had them and would buy games for them. I guess so. Yeah. Uh, now this game, by the way, is interesting. Uh, mm-hmm. It's an action RPG. Uh, more Zelda-like than, say, Secret of Mana-like. Mm. Uh, basically, that takes place in the modern day, involving an American by the name of Mike, who uh, gets transported to different time periods, such as the Stone Age, Ancient Egypt, and the Middle Ages, as he pursues the titular Zoda and tries to stop him. Now, for Secret of Evermore, he's going to do something slightly different. Uh, at some point in development, they're going to switch away from the B-movie aspect. Okay. Now the main character is just going to be a movie fan who quotes B-movies. Sure. And, ins- and instead, he's going to travel to different lands based off of time periods in human history, such as the Stone Age, Ancient Greece, and the Middle Ages. Uh-huh. There are um, some similarities, I would say. A little bit, yeah. There's a, there's a thing he's doing here. Like how we were doing back to back podcast episodes where there's a lead writer who's just like, what if I just did the thing again? (laughs) (laughs) So there's another writer who's credited on this before I understand he basically didn't do a whole lot on this and he's never wrote anything else in in like uh, in gaming ever again. So, Uh, okay, this seems to be mostly uh, George's kind of project here. Okay, fair enough. So. Graphically, the game was built using Square's proprietary Sage program, which stands for Square's Amazing Graphical Editor. 
Come on. That's what I said, too. <laughs> right? I was like, you're, you're lying about this, right? No, it's true. That's what it's called. I don't want to like that as much as I do. <laughs> it's, yeah, it's, it's, it's a name. It's really you, stupid. It, it's a name you hate, and then you think about it for a second, and it grows on you. Yeah, it really does. Damn it. Well, don't worry. Uh, for the scripting, they use Sigil, or Square's Interpreted Game Intelligence League, which... Come on. They made more than one of these names? They made more than one of these names, yes. <laughs> it's pretty great. They apparently were pretty robust programs mm. that allowed you to edit maps and sprites almost on the fly and basically project them onto like a TV screen. Oh, wow. Yeah, uh, which was very important because CRTs back then, the way mm -hmm. colors would bleed and whatnot, uh, very important to see how they would look because how they would look on a computer monitor even back then was wildly different. Yeah, incredibly different. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and I think it's they did a pretty good job with the graphical style in this game in a way that it, they have very expressive sprites. Like, the main mm. character, like, bounces in a really good way. Like, his hair bounces. It's really right. good. Huh. Finally, we have the music. Now, for this game, Square decided to once again assign this role to someone brand new to the industry. In fact, this person's directly out of high school at the time. Huh. A, a then 19-year-old okay. Jeremy Soule. Wow. Right? Wow. Okay. Didn't see that coming. Yeah, this this is like the big twist in the story of like, wait, the, the Elder Scrolls guy? <laughs> and yeah, Jeremy Soule, for those of you who don't know, is the guy in charge of music for the Elder Scrolls series. And now that Marty McDowell is kind of out of gaming, he's probably the biggest American video game composer out there. Mm -hmm. His music has appeared in games both big and small, such as Skyrim. And of course, the smaller things like Young Dilbert's high-tech hijinks. <laughs> A game I desperately want to know what that's about. <laughs> and apparently the 989 sports game, Final Four 2002. I've, huh. um, I immediately went and listened to music from Final Four 2002. Yeah. It's bad. Oh, unfortunate. <laughs> yeah, that, that seems like a contract job. Um, yeah, yeah, that makes sense. Yeah, so needless to say, he's a pretty big deal, and this is his first ever job in the gaming industry. Um. Apparently, while he was doing this, he was also one of the testers for Final Fantasy VI. <laughs> wow. Which, that's fun. Yeah. Hmm. So, um, it, how he got the job, too, was also kind of funny. He just kind of got out of, like, high school and was like, I want to do music. Mm -hmm. And he was like, man, it would be cool to work in video games, too. And I, I listened to these beeps and boops. I know I could do, I could do better than that, essentially. Mm -hmm. And so he sent, like, demo tapes out to LucasArts and Square. Hmm. And LucasArts had, like, a no, like, solicitation policy, so they didn't listen to it. Uh, but apparently Square was like, yeah, shit, whatever, man. Just ran the kids <laughs> or something? Yeah, let's listen to yeah, this. this. Wow, this is good. You want to work on a video game? <laughs> <laughs> Getting a job back then was so much easier. Which, I mean, you know, between him and um, Mitsuda, mm -hmm. it, yeah, Square's had some success with, like, I don't know, man. That guy seems all right. Let's give him a game. Yeah. Yeah. yeah There's one thing you got to say about Square. They can pick a composer. Yeah. And that, that is very consistent throughout their history. So, yeah, yeah. It is. Yeah. Like, pretty pretty amazing stuff to be like, yeah, dude, just work on this. Now, right away, uh, Soul's going to basically go about this like a high schooler. Uh, yeah. And what I, what I mean is that he's going to be like, I want to do a very robust musical score. Having like an incredibly layered orchestral sound to this. 
mm-hmm. like really just blow things out of the water. Mm-hmm. And, and then, then they he, were like, you got 12 megabytes? Yeah, they went, you got 12 megabytes and you're working with the Super Nintendo sound chip. Mm-hmm. A sound chip that was admittedly very impressive at the time, mm-hmm. but was still an out- onboard sound chip on a Super Nintendo. Right. So basically he was like, oh, this is not going to work at all. <laughs> And as, like, lead programmer Brian Fadu Drow, like, pointed out, he's like, he would go back to him and be like, hey, uh, you actually don't have as much memory to work with as we told you. You're going to have to kind of do something different. Mm-hmm. And he talked about, it's like, yeah, he'd grumble a bit, but then he would go and just produce something amazing. And we we're like, <laughs> how are you doing this? This does not make sense to us. And Alex, I think it's now time that uh, I-, I show you a little bit of music from, so this is The Seashore. So yeah, like it's mm-hmm. yeah, yeah it's, like the the ambient sound effects are like very prominent. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and like there's some tracks where the he won't even have like the like the droning going on in the background. Mm-hmm. It'll literally just be ambience, mm-hmm. which like is amazing to me. Like I really love that. Like he like does something like that uh, to give something a little bit more uh, more robust. Closer to like maybe like a more traditional like song that you hear in a video game, but still like it still has like a really different feel to it. Yeah, it is an interesting like it is simultaneously, as you say, like a sort of classic JRPG theme style, but it is also like his style. Mm-hmm. Like you, you can recognize his elements in it if you're familiar with his later work. Oh yeah, absolutely, absolutely, and like. I'm going to make a pretty significant argument that maybe the music is the strongest thing about this game. Like, Mm. I'm not going to sit here and say that it's up there with the best that Square was producing at this time. No. But, like, it's really good, and Mm -hmm. it is very, very distinct, if nothing else. Yeah, it's very interesting, very unique. Mm Mm-hmm. And, yeah, like, clearly he's going to parlay this into bigger and better things Mm -hmm. going forward from here. So yeah, all this is eventually going to come together in a game that's going to release in October of 1995. And unfortunately, Secret of Mana is not going to blow the world. Like, it's not going to blow the world over. Right. It is going to be applauded for a game that is going to look very nice, sound very nice. Mm-hmm. Uh, the gameplay is going to be slighted just a little bit for being a bit more basic. Mm-hmm. But basically, everyone agrees like, boy, we hope this team gets another shot at this. This seems like a really good first effort. Right. Uh, un- uh, oddly enough, actually, I'm reading this right now. Uh, mm-hmm. Apparently, reviewers were more critical concerning the game's sound. Oh. <laughs> They're like, what's, what's his ambient sound? <laughs> this is weird. No one wants to hear, like, immersive sound effects. It's no. a freaking video game. No, not at all. Music must be playing at all times. Which, granted, by the time, like, the Xbox rolls around and, like, th- that becomes right. the norm, I'm going to be like, aw, I-, I miss backing tracks. But, mm-hmm. but yeah. Yeah, it, 
basically this was a decent first attempt that sold modestly well, but not mm-hmm. to the level that they wanted to. Uh, they being Square, and right. so unfortunately they're going to slow, they're going to shut this team down shortly afterwards. And while they will later establish another development studio at uh, their Honolulu studios, this team would eventually get their severance and would go on to different things. Most of the team going to go would go to Humongous Entertainment, which would later become Cave Dog mm. Entertainment. And from there, they would just go all their separate ways. Mm-hmm. Uh, some people like Brian Fadral are still in the industry to this day. Uh, Brian, I think, actually works for Microsoft now, oddly enough. Oh, okay. Yeah. yeah. That's... Um, mm-hmm. that, that's public information, I should say. Okay. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. Um, but uh, yeah, so that's kind of... Uh, where the development history of Secret of Mana ends. Like, once again, very... It's it's an interesting game to me. I Hopefully it's interesting to everyone else. Mm-hmm. It is... It is interesting. It is unfortunate that it wasn't more interesting to Square. Mm-hmm. Because, like... So, we, we mentioned it before. Square keeps trying this, I feel yes. like. They keep saying, like, wow, our games... Especially when one game in particular really catches on in the West. They're like, Mm -hmm. we should expand our development into Western studios. Yeah. And then they seem to always have this notion of what that means is we should open a Western studio, immediately make the most successful game ever, Mm. and then reap nothing but benefits. And it's like, no, this is something you really need to cultivate over like multiple games and projects. Mm Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah, exactly, exactly. And they just don't seem to understand that that's, like, something that you could do. Right. Right? Like, the, I think the, the most currently on everyone's mind is uh, Forspoken. Mm-hmm. They're very long in development, not at all Final Fantasy, fantasy, RPG action game, kind of unclear, mm-hmm. um, that was not overwhelmingly well-received, but also wasn't, like, totally trashed. No. People were sort of like, oh, the writing's not very good, but overall, this is a, you know, it's a middling game. Yeah. And I'm, I don't think Forspoken is a very interesting game, but I would be interested to see that team's, like, third or fourth game. Yeah. Yeah, but I... What's the odds that Square are going to allow them to do that, right? I don't, yeah. If they're not already sold, they probably will be by this time next year. Yeah. Yeah, almost certainly. Square is definitely a company that has, throughout their history, been like, we need immediate returns. Right. And heck, even when they do get those immediate returns, they're like, well, it's not good enough to buoy our other projects. See Tomb Raider and whatnot. Uh Uh-huh. Yeah. Yeah, it's very, very unfortunate. And it's, yeah, it's unfortunate that we never got, like, whatever their follow-up to this is. Right. Because, like, as as much as I say no, stick to, like, Japanese stuff, that's what your audience is here for, that's what we want to see, like, a Western take on a Japanese RPG, which by its nature is a Japanese take on a Western RPG, is like, there's interesting things you can do with this. There there is room for interesting games to develop Mm -hmm. there, but, like, they just get cold feet the first sign things aren't going great every time yep yep yeah they really do and it's too bad it's too bad maybe one day square will learn from their mistakes with that but uh no yeah no they won't i mean it's it's been 30 years at this point like that will never happen square will not learn from anything ever 
They, they've gotten burned by crypto once and now they're doubling down. <laughs> <laughs> oh my god. Yeah. They're, uh, uh, I, lo- I love how every podcast about a Square game ends in and then Square was stupid and it's hilarious. Yeah, pretty much. That is... Like that's literally good. Every every time we do one of these episodes yeah. that involves Square, yeah, it, that yep. always happens. It always mm-hmm. happens. Yep, they they cannot help but follow up every success with just a cascade of stupid ideas. Yep, pretty much. Oh man. Oh, <laughs> uh, Fall Fantasy sixteen looks freaking hot. It does. Have you played I, a demo? I have not. No, but I've I've watched some playthroughs of it, and oh man, that looks hot. That does look incredibly good. I yeah no I'm gonna play the hell of that game. Oh no that game's out in two weeks. Oh yep. no. Uh-huh. Yep. Th- this is a really good year for video games. I wish I had more time for them. Yeah, agreed. Oh, uh, speaking of time, we really probably should get the, the story <laughs> of Secret of Empire. Oh, yes, yes, let's do that. Or at least that's what we are going to do next time. Because unfortunately, this episode has run just a little bit long. So because of that, we're gonna go ahead and end it. here here seems like kind of just a good place to go ahead and do that so on behalf of alex i thank everybody for listening to this episode and if you want more episodes like this go to ftp.podbean.com or search for fallen through plot holes on your podcast service of choice uh leave us a follow and a review we really do appreciate how to know like knowing how we're doing and whatnot and until next time everyone take care <laughs>